We have a quorum, so we're going to go ahead and start the meeting. Um, first item on our agenda is our housekeeping items. Kathy, can you remind us of those, please? Good evening, everyone. I'm Kathy Richardson, the Director of Sustainability. Uh, just sharing a few housekeeping items for tonight's Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. All board members, please keep your video on. All others, keep your video off unless you are participating during the meeting. If you're having any trouble, uh, please send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And just a reminder, there's another board meeting um, tonight, so we do ask uh, for a wrap up around uh, 7.15. Now I'll turn it back to you, Stan. All right, thank you. Um, First item on our agenda is to welcome a new Sustainability Advisory Board member, Catherine Morris. Uh, Catherine uh, also goes by Katie, she says. Uh, welcome, would you uh, please tell us a little about yourself and then we'll go kind of around the room and let you hear from the other board members. Sure, can you hear me? I'm, I think I'm, okay. Um, I, I'm a Lauren's resident. I've lived here for um, over 20 years, and I have um, a couple of kids who are in the public schools around here, and I have, um, let's see, I work at JCCC, though, so I commute into Johnson County every day for work um, at, the, at the college. I work at the art museum there, so that's my professional experience. Um, what else should I share? Anything else? That's why you're on the sustainability. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm personally very interested in sustainability. Um, I have a lot of, um, um, you know, projects that I've been involved in over the years, and um, I guess one of them is um, at JCCC. I volunteered for the last uh, four or five years with a bird collision study, looking at. Um, you know where uh, birds are colliding with structures, and and how to mitigate um, and how to um, do remediation efforts to prevent that. So that's that's one thing that I'm interested in. I also joined the uh, weeds uh, up ordinance update subcommittee, um, so I'm interested in that as well. Great, great. A lot of bird strikes at, at buildings, wind turbines, other structures. Yeah, Ben. Would you introduce yourself to Katie? And yeah. So Ben Sykes. Uh, uh, I've been a Lawrence resident for about 10 years. I work over at KU and also in the biological survey, uh, where I work mostly on soils. And I've been on the SAB since I think about 2019 or tw 2020, maybe early. And uh, I think you know I have four boys of uh, different ages and um, just interested in sustainability, both for, for them and also for personal, just like caring about how we affect the surroundings for us. All right, uh, let's see who's next here. Motion, could you please introduce yourself to Katie? Yeah, sure. Hi, Katie, welcome to the board. I'm Mohsen Fatemi, and 
I'm currently a PhD student in public administration at KU working on renewable energy policy and energy justice and my educational background is in architecture and urban planning. I've worked on energy efficiency in buildings, sustainability rating systems and climate action plans. Glad you're here. Thank you, Motion. Amanda? Hi, Katie. My name is Amanda Stam. Um, I have lived in Lawrence for over 20 years. I joined the Sustainability Advisory Board just last year, um, Vice President of Energy Operations for Cromwell Solar. I have two young girls, um, preschool and elementary age, and I joined here in part because of them and to bring my years of experience in the renewable, uh, renewable energy industry to the board. Um, Great, thank you. Nancy? Hey, I'm Nancy Miwakady, nice to meet you. Um, I have a PhD in pharmacology and toxicology and I'm a chair of that department at KU School of Pharmacy. I've been the um, chair for the Wakarusa group of the Sierra Club for the past couple of years and have been an active member of the Sustainability Action Network for about five or more years. Thanks, Nancy. Kay? Hello, Katie. My name is Kay Johnson, and I am the Sustainability and Environment Manager for Prosico, and we're a uh, products um, manufacturing or building materials company, and I, my professional career has always been in the environmental area, so I've got 40 years plus and in just about every sector, nonprofit, 10 years working at the city of Wichita as a director of environmental uh, services, and um, I've been on the board for this is my second term. I also have a chemistry degree and a master's in environmental studies, and I am passionate about all things environmental and sustainability. So welcome to the board. Don. Hi, Katie. It's uh, good to have you on the board. Um, my name is Dawn Hawkins. I've been uh, attending meetings for many years just as a citizen at large and just recently joined the board um, as an actual board member. Um, I worked at KU for many years, uh, most recently um, uh, switched jobs and I, I now work for Frack Tracker Alliance, which is a, a nonprofit organization that um, uh, takes data and turns it into maps and visual tools. Um, for researchers and organizations that are interested in pollution and harms caused by the um, extractive industries. I represent myself, however, um, on this board. Um, I belong to a lot of grassroots local environmental organizations as well. Thank you. Thanks, Don. And Katie, I'm Stan Rasmussen. I'm currently the chair. Um, my term expires in December. Uh, I've been a resident of Lawrence for over 44 years. Um, I um, got my undergraduate degree at KU and then I got a law degree at Denver University and I've practiced mainly environmental and energy law my entire career. I've um, currently, I am the director of an environmental and energy office for the Department of Defense and the Army. I office out of Fort Leavenworth and I have a nine state territory I cover. 
So welcome. We're glad you're here. And um, with that, anything else you want to add or should we move on? We're moving on. Okay, next item on our agenda is uh, consideration and approval, hopefully approval, of our minutes from our September 13 meeting. They were um, attached to the packet of materials. I don't know if we have any comments or suggested revisions. Pretty basic. I just want to give a shout out to Kathy. Thanks for putting all that stuff in the staff report. And I think it just echoes like how incredibly much sustainability things are going on. And I think it's good for the public and for us to be reminded of like, all, I mean, there's probably like 20 things on here in the staff report last time. So it's good to see all that stuff there. Thanks. Maybe you should make a motion then. <laughs> I move to approve the minutes from September. I'll second. Nancy seconded. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Any opposed? Aye. Okay, the minutes have been approved. All right, the next item on our agenda is uh, we have a presentation tonight by uh, Evergy, and I think a Q&A session with them. They're, uh, Kayla Messamore and Jason Humphrey are here uh, representing Evergy, and uh, Kayla's coming up to the podium to do her presentation, and I think it's gonna be able to be seen by the members on Zoom, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so welcome, Kayla. All right, thank you very much. Can everybody hear me okay? For warning, it, it's a little hard for me to hear y'all who are in the room, um, okay. so if you could speak up a little bit or if the mic could be turned on, that would be helpful for questions later. So thank you all for having me. Um, I wanted to start out with a quick disclosure. I did go to the University of Texas. If everyone could just forgive me. Um, y'all recovered very well from the one game without your quarterback last week. So, and we face planted against OU. So we've got that at least going for us. So I figured I'd get that out of the way first as a non-Lawrence resident. Um, but I do live in Kansas City. So what I'm going to do real quick today is kind of take a step back and talk about how we plan for power generation um, for Evergy, for Kansas specifically. So I'll talk through the process that we use and some of the different factors that go into it. And then at the end, we can talk a little bit about the specific solar project that I think y'all have talked about before, and I can absolutely answer questions. Um, some of this will be a little bit more education and theory, but it, I hope it'll help explain kind of how we produce uh, integrated resource plan or a long-term plan for our power plants um, for our customers. So we will give that a try. I'll just use this. I don't need that. So I'll start with an overview of Evergy. That will take not very long because I know most of y'all are familiar, but just wanted to start with that groundwork and then talk about how do you build an integrated resource plan and what does it, what does it do, what does it mean. Um, I'll spend quite a bit of time talking about the Southwest Power Pool just because that's a entity that has a lot of impact on how we plan and, and just the different considerations that go into our resource planning. And then I'll cover what is our current preferred resource plan and what are the components that make it up. And then, like I said, we can talk about solar or anything else you want to talk about after that with the rest of the time. Reminder, um, this is Evergy Service Territory, so let me get this 
there's a giant cursor on the screen, but I will, that's just on this computer. So um, this is our service territory. We have four different jurisdictions. Um, each of them has a different mix of resources and they spread across Kansas and Missouri. Um, this is the generation mix of each of our resources or of our utilities. So I like to start with this because we actually do an integrated resource plan or a separate resource planning process for each of these three utilities. Um, they each have very different starting points in terms of the fleet that they have today. They have different customer mixes. They have different long-term growth trajectories. So we are actually looking at each of them individually, but all the factors that I'll talk about today are impacting all three of them in similar ways. So I think we won't focus too much on the details of individual jurisdictions, but it's just important context that we do have three different companies that we're actually planning for within Evergy overall. Um, as a reminder, we have had quite a bit of progress in terms of emissions reductions. Um, this is through 2020, over 50% reduction in CO2, 98% um, in SO2, and 88% in NOx. A lot of that's been driven by what you see on the top left, which is just a significant penetration and growth of wind energy in our mix. Um, Kansas is great for wind. We'll talk about it's great for solar as well, and we've really been able to take advantage of that um, in driving this and in driving our progress as we go forward. Which these are our current um, CO2 emission reduction targets as I covered on the last slide. We've already reduced compared to 2005 by more than 50% and we have a goal of 70% reduction by 2030 and then net zero by 2045. So when we build our resource plans, this is an output of those resource plans of the emissions reductions we expect to be able to achieve as technology advances and as we take advantage of the growth of renewables, um, but it does show a continued trajectory in emissions reduction over time. As we plan, these are the three things that we're always factoring together. This is what we're balancing, this is what we're trying to think about, which is affordability um, is the primary thing that we're looking at in a resource planning process of as we're building this, what is the lowest risk-adjusted cost plan for our customers? How do we manage customer costs over time to make sure the resource plan is affordable? Next, we have to maintain reliability. So that's non-negotiable. We have to meet our reliability requirements, and we're building our resource plans to a level that maintains the reliability of service. And then finally is sustainability, which drives the other two things as well. We're factoring in how do we transition to away from fossil fuels to more sustainable fuels over time while keeping the other two things in balance as well. So everything we do is a balance. Everything I'll talk about today is trying to balance those three things. And hopefully we'll show a little bit of how the math works. I won't get into the math because we don't have time for that, honestly. But I will try to explain a little bit about how it works. If you hear anything about an integrated resource plan, um, what that is is it's a regulatory requirement. We do have to file one in both Kansas and Missouri. Like I said, we file one for each of our three jurisdictions. And simplistically what it is, is what are the supply side and demand side resources that we need over the next 20 years to meet our customers' energy needs over that same time frame? And how do we do it at the lowest risk-adjusted cost? When we're doing that analysis, we're factoring in that 
one, nobody knows the future. <laughs> so you have to be able to factor in a lot of uncertainty and gauge how robust is this plan across a very uncertain set of futures that we could see. And across all of that uncertainty, what is the lowest cost way to meet customer needs? We assess that by calculating what's called the net present value of revenue requirement. It's a really long way of saying customer costs. So how much are customers having to pay for these resources as we deploy them? That factors in, do we retire things? Do we add things? All of those different decisions. So how do you build an IRP? Uh, IRPs are hundreds of pages long, but this is generally the four things that you're thinking about. First is capacity and energy requirements, which is how much do customers need? How much energy do they need? So everything I'm building in a resource plan is to meet those customer needs. Number two and three are basically how much do they cost or how much value am I gonna get out of different types of resources? So it's driven by two primary factors, which are commodity prices, usually natural gas. We'll talk a little bit about why natural gas prices matter so much in resource planning. And then two is carbon restrictions or other regulations that, that impact the cost of our resources. So we look at the uncertainty around those two things to assess what's the cost or value of different resource plans in a variety of futures. And then last, bringing all that together, what's the most economic mix of technologies to meet customer needs given those different futures? So that's where we talk about relative technology economics of how do you balance different types of technologies to keep affordability, reliability, and sustainability in check. Ultimately, you end up with a pretty diverse mix of resources, as we'll cover in the, few, in the last few slides. This feels like a hard pivot. It will make more sense uh, as we get into it. But for those who aren't familiar, the Southwest Power Pool is our um, regional transmission operator or our independent system operator, whatever you want to call them. They are the regional pool that we're a part of. Um, we are the long largest load-serving member of SPP. I'll call it SPP for the rest of this because that will take up a lot of time <laughs> if I have to say Southwest Power Pool every time. But it is the regional pool that manages um, transmission and generation dispatch, among other things, for us and several other utilities in the Midwest. So I'll spend a little bit of time explaining how SPP impacts our plans, what are the different drivers that create the capacity requirements or the uh, expected technology economics that are driven by SPP and the region as a whole. There's four main areas where we work with SPP. The middle two are more just for awareness that SPP does have responsibilities for transmission operations and transmission planning and maintaining the reliability of the bulk system for their region. What I'll focus most on in this discussion related to resource planning is on the right-hand side, resource adequacy, which I'll explain in depth. And then on the left-hand side is market operations. So I'll get into both of those things in more detail because they're the most impactful directly to long-term generation planning. Resource adequacy is where we'll start, though. So resource adequacy can be defined as either capacity or energy adequacy, but the, the easy way to explain it is it's making sure that you have enough generation resources that you can meet peak demand plus a buffer to, to basically allow for risk or uncertainty or the fact that resources might not perform. So it's how much generation do I have in order to en 
enable an acceptable level of reliability. So that's all we're talking about. We're talking about resource adequacy. Um, it's just how much do you need and what kind does it need to be in order to count. There's lots of factors that go into resource adequacy. I won't explain all of these, but what SPP is doing when they establish resource adequacy requirements um, is they're looking at every single uncertainty on this page from how much load do you have, that varies based on weather, how much renewable resource do you have, that also varies based on weather, will you have outages, will you have access to power from your neighbors. They look at all of those things at the same time randomize them, essentially, to factor in the risk of what if things go wrong in different areas of that um, equation, and then do you have risk that you're going to have interruption of service? And then we're going to say, okay, how much do I need in order to mitigate that risk? That's simplistically how they're calculating resource adequacy requirements. Um, it is SPP's job to calculate and to define those requirements, but they are the jurisdiction of the states. So the states actually approve resource adequacy requirements. It's kind of a shared responsibility between SPP and the states in our case, but less relevant for this, but just interesting to remember. So I talked through this conceptually, but when we look at defining our capacity and energy requirements in a resource planning process, which, like I said, is how much do we need and of what that we're putting in, a in an IRP, what SPP is telling us is on the left-hand side, what's your planning reserve margin? That's the buffer you have to maintain over and above your forecasted load. It's how much extra you have to have. And then they say, what is the capacity accreditation? And what that is is how much does each megawatt of installed capacity of a given resource count towards that requirement they just established. So let's say in today's case, they say you take your peak load, you need 15% more than that in accredited capacity. That's your planning reserve margin. And then they say for each resource type, it's going to count anywhere from and generally 10 to 100% of its installed capacity. That's how much you get to count. So that's what's on the next slide. It's kind of an indicative range of how capacity accreditation works. So each of these technology types will have a different typical accreditation, and it can range quite a bit. Um, but solar and wind, for example, will get anywhere from 5 to 60. Wind is a little bit lower in a tighter band. The reason wind is lower is just because wind is typically blowing the most when it's nighttime, springtime, all of those non-peak times. Solar, on the other hand, is more peak correlated. It's sunnier when it's hottest, for example. So you see that sort of relationship. The reason solar is such a big band um, between 5 and 60 is because in the winter, you don't see a strong correlation between solar output and peak winter demand. Because, for example, you could have snow on the solar panels. You could have all sorts of overcast skies. That's where you see that variation. It's more seasonal and less driven by um, wind is pretty tight because it's pretty consistent across the year, although not perfect. This is empirically based on actual data and is updated over time? It is, yeah. So it's a little bit different by technology. What solar, wind, and storage, I will not spend too long on this because I can get into a lot of details, but it, it's probabilistically determined. So they'll take historical data, combine that historical renewable resource output data with historical load and say, compared to a perfect resource, how good is this resource at meeting customer needs over time? So they're taking actual historical data and then 
that determines how good is wind overall at meeting customer needs, and then a resource gets allocated their share of that based on how well they specifically perform at peak times. So it, yeah, there's a lot of math involved, but that's generally how it's working. For thermal, it's the same con basically the same construct. It works a little bit differently. What they're saying is how reliable is the resource. And this is a, these are all new policies that SPP is implementing over the next few years. But if I say a resource is 100 megawatts, but it's in forced outage 5% of the time, I'm going to give it a haircut to say you get 95 megawatts instead, because you're going to be in outage, not a perfect resource um, in those hours. So that's generally what they're trying to do is how much does this count compared to a perfect resource in meeting capacity requirements? All right, and so this is specific to us, trying to sort of summarize the things that we've seen change our capacity requirements over time. Um, and this is for Kansas Central, one of our jurisdictions. So what we've seen, in short, is going from a pretty large capacity surplus, about 400 megawatts um, at this point. And as one, SPP has changed resource adequacy requirements. We've seen a pretty dramatic increase in economic development. A, a little bit of that is Panasonic, but it's really just a lot of other larger loads. Um, and then we have the Lawrence retirement and any future coal retirement, what you see is going from a position of surplus to a really large capacity need. And that's what we're solving for in our integrated resource plan is I have this capacity need, what's the most economic way to fill it? Factoring in all the other stuff I'm about to talk about, which is how much value is it gonna get and how much is it gonna cost? So uh, switching over from resource adequacy to the market, the reason this is important is because the SPP integrated market is what defines the economics of our resources, say, from day to day. So this is what's determining whether they're running or not, how much revenue they're getting, how much fuel they're burning. All of that is driven by the SPP integrated market. And for those who don't spend a lot of time thinking about electricity, just a reminder that SPP Electricity supply and demand have to be perfectly imbalanced, essentially at all times, because there's pretty limited storage capacity. So in the past, that supply and demand balancing was done on a pretty local level. So Westar, for example, would take my power plants, my load, I keep them in balance. I can buy from my neighbors a little bit, but I'm gonna keep them in balance. In the SPP market, that scale has expanded dramatically, where now SPP is responsible for keeping that in balance across the 14 states. So they're buying from every generator in SPP, they're selling to every load in SPP. That's great because it creates more economies of scale, it can reduce costs overall because you have so many other generators that are involved and you can just optimize costs. And I'll talk about how they do that in, on the next slide, but it's a little more complicated because it's not just, I have a 100 megawatt load, I must have 100 megawatts at all time because you're able to purchase from others in the market if it's more economic for customers. And a quick overview of how the SPP market works because I think it can be a little confusing and it's very important for resource planning is SPP is doing a variable cost economic dispatch. So they're taking every single available resource in the pool, they're stacking it based on how much does it cost for that resource to produce the next megawatt that it could produce. And they're saying, 
If I stack that up and then I draw a line at where the load is, that's the marginal energy cost. That's the cost for every megawatt hour that's gonna be produced in that hour. That's gonna be the revenue every generator gets and the load, um, the price that every load pays per megawatt hour. So that's a little not intuitive if you just think about balancing your own load, you're just balancing fuel costs and saying what's the lowest fuel cost because there's so many other generators involved. The interesting thing is you can see wind and solar on this chart are actually less than zero, if you can tell. Their negative uh, marginal cost is because they're getting production tax credits. So a resource will be willing to generate at a negative price because they're getting paid a production tax credit for generating. So I can create negative prices in the market, it can create a lot of different dynamics, but that's just important to remember. The next thing is that this is why gas prices matter, as I mentioned before. If you see the light blue gas price variation, every time your load crosses into that natural gas portion of your supply curve, so you've used up every wind, solar, nuclear, coal resource that's available, and now you're getting into gas as your marginal unit, your energy price for the entire pool is now pegged directly to the natural gas price. So how much those generators are gonna have to pay for the fuel that they burn is now setting the price, essentially. So that's why you look at natural gas as a key driver of how much revenue is a generator gonna get, how much is load gonna have to pay for energy over the next 20 years. A lot of that can be driven by natural gas prices. And again, we can, I can answer questions later. I know this is like a whirlwind tour of the integrated market, so. Switching to relative technology economics. If everything I've just said is, how much do I need? That's my capacity and energy requirements. How much is it gonna be worth in the market is simplistically what you're getting out of the integrated market. And then how much does it cost for me to get it? That's what these different levelized costs are. So for every megawatt hour that's produced by a given technology, how much am I spending on fixed and variable costs to get it? And this is a Lazard calculation, so publicly available, and I tried to just simplify it and pick the midpoint of all of their ranges. But this shows you what the integrated resource planning process is doing. It's saying, I need a certain number of megawatt hours. I need to be able to meet my capacity requirements. How can I mix these different technologies in the most economic way to meet my capacity requirements at the lowest reasonable cost? And it actually will point out why our resource plan looks the way that it does on the next few slides. As you see a lot of solar and wind, because those are very low cost energy resources, but you kind of reach a point with solar and wind where you can't meet your capacity requirements only with solar and wind. They're just, they actually have declining accreditation as you add more and more and more because adding another wind farm doesn't make it windier. It's either windy or it's not. So you reach a point where you get declining accreditation from wind once you reach a saturation point. We can talk more about that if, if we need to because I see confused faces in the room. But um, that's why you can't meet everything with renewables so then it goes to what's next. So our plan, the next thing we have is gas combined cycle. That's kind of the next lowest cost um, which competes well with just existing depreciated coal units. So I'll actually switch to this one, um, which is a summary of everything I've talked about before we get into what our actual resource plan looks like. So 
On the right-hand side, we've talked about this a bunch of times, the one thing that I didn't cover in this version of the slides is you have a need for capacity and energy, but you also have a need for carbon-free energy. We run a lot of carbon-restricted scenarios as sensitivities in our plans, and so we will have resource plans that have to meet certain levels of carbon restriction, and so the model will be solving for the lowest cost way to meet that as well. It's not in every single scenario, it's in two-thirds of them that we run where there is a level of carbon restriction we're solving for. Um, but then you take those three types of needs and you say, how much do the different resources cost? How much revenue do I think they'll get from the SPP market? And then what's the risk of all this uncertainty of if natural gas prices change or if carbon restrictions change? With all of that together, you select a preferred portfolio, um, which is the final output of an integrated resource planning process. And that is, Based on what we know today and a range of uncertainties, what's the lowest cost way to meet customer needs for the next 20 years? It changes over time as conditions change, but generally we're trying to pick something that's robust across a lot of different potential scenarios so we can start executing on that transition and that, um, that movement in our resource plan over time. All right, I alluded to this a little bit, but this is our current preferred portfolio. So you can see we have quite a bit of wind and solar in the top half, so that's about half um, of our new resource additions, a little bit more than that. And then we have a chunk of new natural gas additions, so those would be um, a mix of existing resources and new hydrogen-capable natural gas turbines. And then last, we have a placeholder for firm dispatchable resources, which is a long way of saying it's a placeholder for future technologies. So we only plan to have those in the last kind of five to seven years of our plan beyond 2035. The reason for that is that we know technology is advancing on new nuclear, on hydrogen, on long duration energy storage. There are all these new technologies that we think by that time will be available to reliably um, replace our coal resources and maintain dispatchability and meet capacity requirements, but they're all very costly today. So they don't look like economic resource, or resource choices today, so we use a placeholder to say we expect those economics to improve over time and they'll be a valuable part in our plan in the late 2030s. Then finally, we have all of our fossil retirements. We do have the majority of our coal fleet retiring by the end of the time frame, and it's paced over time. The, the way that we think about coal retirements is building out renewables in the first um, part of the plan to prepare for what I'll call the first round of coal retirements. Once you get to the second round, which is where the bulk of our retirements are in the 36 to 2041 um, timeframe, you really need to have that firm dispatchable alternative before you're able to make those dramatic levels of retirements because you just have a lot of reliability risk at that time if you're not replacing it with something that is as dispatchable. Um, we did look at energy storage, and I showed this on the prior, or a couple slides ago. Energy storage is also not quite economic yet, even for our lithium ion. I think it will probably have a place in our plan over time, but at this point, I think of it as more of one of those potential technologies that could fill the placeholders. We do continue to look at it, though. I'll close with this slide, I think. So this is what I alluded to, I think, on my first slide, which is that 
in our 2040 plan, we have this really big mix of a lot of different technologies. Um, I think that makes sense based on all of the uncertainty that we've talked about. A lot of it is non-emitting. A lot of it is, um, is new dispatchable natural gas. But, and it reduces our reliance on coal very dramatically, especially compared to 2005. But we'll continue to adjust our plan um, every year. We actually file a, another IRP in April, uh, so we get to do these every year. So we're working on the next one now, and we'll continue to look at some of these considerations. But for the sake of time, I'll probably pause here and see if there are questions or if I need to transition to Jason to talk about solar or other things, we can do that. Thank you. Hang on a sec. I've got to get the screen up to see if I can see anybody's hand or is. Let's see, does anybody have any questions? Stop sharing, please. Oops. Sure. Uh, Don, I see your hand up. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, it sounds like there's more to this presentation, so maybe I should hold my my questions. Um, I, I'm kind of, I don't know, blindsided because I wasn't expecting this. I don't remember talking about an Evergy presentation, and I'm not sure. I wasn't prepared for questions, and I didn't have this presentation or any material beforehand to use our meeting time to ask those questions. Um, we can discuss this more after. I'd like to, to, to talk about this more after um, I guess the presentation is finished. We have one more person from Evergy that's going to speak. We do. I think, I think that's about this. You're available to talk about solar. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. We're asked to come prepared to yeah. talk about Kansas Sky in case you guys had questions, but the focus was really on integrated resource planning overall. So okay. happy to share some if you'd like, but if, if not, that's fine too. I've got a couple. And I'm sorry. Can, can we can we catch the the names of the the speakers? Um, I don't see it in our. It, it's in our agenda. It's it's in the agenda. Oh, Ka Kayla Messamore just presented, and Jason Humphrey is here also. Thank you. So I have a question about excess power generation. So okay. You were showing how much excess Evergy is producing that then goes into SPP. Like I think currently it was something like 400 megawatts or something like that. It was quite a lot, right? Yeah. Right. Kind of. So that's excess capacity over and above our requirements. It's not actually like excess power getting generated. It's right. saying if our requirement is 120, we have more than that. Sure. So I guess what I'm asking is being part of SPP, mm -hmm. the economics, the market economics of SPP seems to drive the lack of the ability to retire legacy resources because market forces are still driving benefits to any production or any capacity, sorry, that's above even what the regional environment might lead. Like Evergy I think you said was the largest of, S mm -hmm. of the producers or, or the capacity of SPP, right? So I guess there's this market force that's working there to go to all of the other regions that are potentially needing the capacity that we have. Is that right? Is that, or is that not the right way to characterize it? 
Well, I would say like that slide showed that we had 400 megawatts and as a couple of things have changed, now we are at our SPP capacity requirement. So there really isn't any excess capacity at this point because the reserve margin has changed, we've had load change. So those other factors have moved to where there isn't excess capacity. But also capacity requirement is not a market, it's a requirement. So there's not a kind of incentive or driving that. It's more if we don't meet that requirement, we pay a payment. And that capacity requirement is based on like what we would need as a region, yes. not all the other regions we're connected to. It's based on what SPP says we, Evergy, have to maintain based on our load and our resources. Okay. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess I'm curious, like, I didn't see in your timeline for the things that it, have you had any, have we had any retirement so far of um, fossil, of coal? We had several as recently as 2018. Okay. Um, the, that was sort of the last round. No, we didn't go back that far. Yeah, we have another one that goes back a lot farther, but we have had quite a few coal retirements over time and gas, um, kind of older gas turbine retirements as well. Um, the most recent batch was in 2018 though. So that 51% reduction, is that come mostly because demand has increased and we've increased most, we've met most of that demand through new green or is it because we've actually gotten rid of, is that? I'd say it's both. Okay. So we've had retirements, which is retired coal generation and gas generation from the fleet that's reduced emissions that way. But also as renewables have come onto the grid, they've displaced the energy that was produced even from our existing fleet that isn't retired yet. So they're not producing as much as they used to because there's wind available to backfill um, those megawatt hours. But not enough to... Not enough to fully replace them, yes. So they're just driving down emissions and generation, but they're not enough to backfill the capacity and the reliability requirement. And the reliability requirement. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the term risk-adjusted cost plan is a tricky one, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's affordability, but it, it is wrapped around right. reliability, right? Yeah. I think so part of the challenge from a sustainability perspective is that increased emissions right. causes more variability, potentially, right? We have yeah. greater risk. We have more weather events. We have other kinds of things that are challenges to risk-adjusted cost plans, right? So and, I, I'm just curious yeah. how Evergy sees those things. Well, I would say one of the largest risks that we factor into our planning is the risk of emissions caps or emissions reduction requirements. So it's sort of looking at it the, a different way than you are, but it's saying, what if regulations require us to reduce emissions even faster than we're planning to? that requires a different resource plan. So that's one of the main uncertainties when we're calculating a risk-adjusted cost. We're saying there is a risk that will be required to transition faster, and that will be more costly in that scenario. Thanks. So most of that risk comes from regulation? That's how we model it, yes. Okay, thanks. I think when people are thinking climate change and sustainability yeah. and stuff, they're thinking risk of those kinds of events. Right, more the physical risks. Yes, exactly. we, it's a math exercise, so we try to turn everything into a quantitative cost that we can put into the model, uh -huh. and that's the easiest way we're able to do it, so. I don't want to monopolize all the questions. You're fine. You're done? No more questions? Uh, I have a question. Oh, two hands up. 
Uh, hang on, you're done? Yes. Okay, uh, Kay, I saw your hand up. Motion, you can yes, be next. Thank you. Um, Kay Johnson, Sustainability Advisory Board member. I have a couple of three questions. <laughs> so with the baseload of Evergy customers, what, what currently is the baseload of Evergy customers? And and they also, the additional question is, has the base load increased over time? And then the last three years, now we need to take the Panasonic plant out of the question, out of the equation. But um, that's one question. And then do Evergy customers cause the peak load um, to be reached? And usually when the peak load is getting closer, we need to have additional resources. So that's usually what I believe Evergy builds to uh, make sure that the peaks are trained are, are available. And then also when businesses and groups prepare their emissions inventory, because we have a coal plant in our system, no matter what the city of Lawrence has signed on to for wind or whatever, whoever's doing the emissions inventory we have to use the we have to figure the highest emissions because we have a coal plant so it's difficult for us as businesses to uh, reduce our footprint because of the coal plant so the number one questions about the base load the number two questions about peak and then the third question is about the coal plant in our emissions inventory okay uh no promises, I will remember all three in the process of answering, so I might have to ask you to repeat. By base load, no do, you, do you mean more like average load? Right. Okay. Um, so I'll say our peak has been around 10,000 megawatts for a while for Evergy um, for the last few years. We have seen economic development activity from several different customers pick up, which will make that increase in the next five years, I'll say, but that hasn't really picked up yet. Um, so I think that answers your second question. On the first question, average load, I wanna say, I, I don't wanna just speculate. I think it's around 75% of that um, 10,000, so call it 7,500, um, is the average load across Evergy. And then, that has also stayed relatively consistent because you have load growth, but then you can counteract that with demand side programs, demand response, energy efficiency, other things like that. So it's stayed. Which we don't have, which we do not have right now. You do but now. It's been recently approved, so we're excited to start deploying those programs under the, the new order. So that is very exciting, and it will be, it's a big part of our resource plan in Missouri, and we're very excited to have it in Kansas as well. Um, so third question, I'm afraid I can't answer in a super detailed way because a lot of how that's calculated determines on kind of how, how you're calculating it and what all you're trying to factor in. I know that we provide um, carbon intensity and other things to customers, but if you're talking about geographically located emissions, which it sounds like what you're talking about, if we follow the ESG method of doing it, okay. you have to get use the SPC emissions factor, and that includes the coal plants. So regardless of what the city of Lawrence is doing, businesses and individuals and all 
customers in the Evergy area have to use the emission factors that includes coal plants, regardless of whether we actually purchase wind power. Yes. So I think that's where our plan transitions over time. I mean, the coal plants are producing significantly less than they used to, but we do still need them to provide electricity today. So that's why they're provided in that number. It's more of a methodology question of how renewable energy credits count. Um, so I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about all of those nuances. And it, it, it makes the businesses and individuals have a higher emissions factor. And so it makes us have higher footprints. So I guess there's no answer, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, we have to plan for reliability and affordability as well. So we're factoring all of that into supplying power. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Kay. Mosin, mm -hmm. um, you had your hand up. Yes, Mosin, for the board member, um, I have a number. Of number of questions. First, I'm curious how often this IRP plan is updated. And if I remember correctly, from your second to the last slide, in 2046, 36% of your portfolio is still fossil. So I'm curious by 2045, how, what's the plan to get net zero? Is it like getting credits for that or how does it work? And I'm also curious about the inventory of your emissions. Is it, is it tier one, tier two? Is it like direct, indirect? Thank you. Okay. Um, so we file an integrated resource plan annually. We do a full compliance filing every three years, which is what we'll do in 2024. And then we update it every year in between. Um, the second question, so we show the chart through 2040, which does have 28% um, um, from natural gas and oil, but that is capacity. So that's installed capacity. That doesn't mean that those are running very often. So that's the other thing to think about is that capacity can be maintained for the peak hours. And if it's low cost, that could make sense. And then it's not running very often. It's not producing emissions. There's also potential for conversion of those over time um, that we would look at. But when we think about net zero, it's net zero is dependent on those firm dispatchable technologies being available and commercial. And so we see our move to 2040 as the first step in that. But there's more that would have to be done between 2040 and 2045 to reach net zero, for sure. Any other questions, Motion? I just have one more question. Um, is I'm not sure if it's going to be within the IRP or not, but is there any investment in efficiency in the IRP, or it's a totally different thing? We look at our uh, energy efficiency and demand response portfolios in the IRP. So with the new um, order from Kansas, we'll factor that in and plan around um, increased demand side programs in 
um, Kansas. We also factor in what I'll call naturally occurring energy efficiency when we think about what load will be over time. So lighting standards and other efficiency improvements are factored into the load that we're planning around. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thanks. Okay. All right, thank you. Uh, Nancy? Hi, thank you. Um, I'm Nancy Mumot, uh, SAB member. Uh, you had lots of numbers, and, and the one that I saw missing was human mortality. And so, you know, fossil fuels cause 3.6 million deaths annually. In the United States, that's 283,000 deaths from fossil fuels. Uh, I don't see any accounting of that. and and. I, I would think that would be a really important number when you're considering an IRP and a plan for Kansas. So, so what is your plan to include that sort of issue? So the Environmental Protection Agency factors in all public health impacts when they assess what regulations are needed. And we plan around current EPA regulations and expected um, changes in those regulations over time. So we're not the EPA, so we have to factor in what they're expecting the regulations are to address any public health impacts. So basically you're saying you just look at what the EPA says, you don't care how many people you kill every year. The EPA's responsibility is to assess public health and we have to lean on their judgment. Okay. I, I understand there's people from the public that have questions. I want to make sure everybody on the board's had a chance first. Um, and then we'll see if we have enough time to open it up to the public. Uh, any other board members have questions? For Kayla? I, I have one just quick follow-up on Go ahead, this, ben. maybe a simplification, because we have a lot of people, particularly in Lawrence, you talked about the integrated plan, mm -hmm. the entire SPP, can you speak just directly to the decision by Evergy to first propose to close the coal plant and then to take back that, that it couldn't be done based on some of the things that you're just talking about? Like, was the new projection by SPP part of the reason that you can't close? Like, yeah. I, think, I, I think a lot of people want Evergy to speak directly to that, particularly when affordability as one of the three legs of the stool is, is not getting necessarily better as a, as a result of that. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we do still plan to retire that plant in 2028. So it was a delay in the retirement, not a cancellation of the retirement. And the reason for the delay is kind of all of the above. It's SPP changes in capacity requirement. It's increased economic development activity. It's also delays in renewables build out because of supply chain challenges. We have to make sure we can build those replacement resources before we retire what we have so we stay sufficient from a capacity perspective. So Lawrence really provides a bridge. It's available. We can delay it a little bit so that we have time to make sure those new resources come online to serve customers. So just let's, if we play a hypothetical, I know you guys don't like to play this game because you work with real numbers. If it closed tomorrow, what would be the impact overall on the electrons floating around in SPP and how much we got here in Lawrence? Like, does it provide one one hundredth of the capacity for, I mean, if we're talking about we're all connected in this large SPP, mm -hmm. 
I, it, it's hard for me at least to understand how much that provides of that to either my house or our region. Yeah, so the impact is about 130 megawatts. Um, so compared to Kansas Central peak load of 5,000, doesn't sound like a huge portion, but if you think about it in a couple of years, we forecast to be short. So Lawrence becomes the difference between meeting capacity requirements in the next couple of years and not meeting capacity requirements. And if we don't meet them, we have to pay deficiency payments to SPP and all of those things. So it's there's some impact on sort of energy costs from an hour to hour perspective, depending on if Lawrence was economically dispatched, which it would only be economically dispatched if it was more economical than the next best option. So that's less of a factor. What really matters is we have to meet capacity requirements and Lawrence is what's available to meet them in the near term. So if we had another 130 megawatts that came online that wasn't predicted already, it would be easy to rep replace that. If it could come on that quickly. And we're planning around a large amount coming on right around the time that we have Lawrence slated for retirement now, which is what's helping that happen. Thank you. Uh, Kay, you have a follow-up question? I do, just a quick one. So when Texas had their outage, when we suffered, um, you know, we, uh, you as Evergy planned for us in Kansas, and we don't see it all that fair if power is being diverted to another state. So can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so SPP's, um, the rolling outages that they had to do during winter storm URI were not related to Texas's outage. That was related to SPP and the availability of resources that they had to serve their load. We did supply where, when we were able to supplied power to Texas, but, and we got a ton of power from our neighbors as well to support us through that. So that's where imports are important for us, for our neighbors, but that issue was in SPP as well. It wasn't an outage caused by the Texas outage. Gas supply was disrupted across the entire center of the U.S. Thank you. Uh, Don, you have a follow-up question? Um, presentation aside, um, uh, what, what is Evergy doing to increase storage capacity, uh, you know, to meet these these demands and are you, is Evergy taking advantage of any of the um, kind of new federal funding um, to help in this process? I assume, are you talking about battery storage, Don? Battery energy storage? Any kind of energy storage. I mean, I'm looking at, at uh, I mean, it looks like storage is, is a, a big component in, in meeting capacity. Um, so is there, what other storage types are there? Yeah, so at this point, most storage is, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, most storage is four hour lithium ion um, or a lithium based chemistry. Like I said, we've looked at uh, the economics of that in our resource plans and it's just a little too expensive at this point. I think costs will come down over time and we're monitoring that. But at this point, while it is a strong capacity resource, it's not competing 
quite with the alternatives yet. Um, I think the long duration, the longer duration storages, um, whether it's flow batteries or pumped hydro, anything that's getting tens of hours of duration instead of just four will have a lot of potential in the long term. They're just not quite economic yet. And on federal funding, so uh, we are assuming and planning to take advantage of significant federal funding for our renewables build out um, for the wind and solar in our plan so that the tax credits available are a huge part of the economics of our renewables in our plan, but um, the storage investment tax credit just hasn't been quite large enough to shift the economics to where that it competes. Um, any other questions from the board members? Uh, I, I'd like to ask a couple questions uh, myself. One yeah. is, how many combined cycle combustion turbine projects does Evergy have? You mean currently operating or yeah. in the next 20 years? Yes. Both? Do we have any <laughs> operating currently? Yes, we have a couple of combined cycle plants today, lots of combustion turbines. Lots um, of simple cycles. Simple cycle, yes. Combined cycles where? Stateline and Hawthorne yeah. are the two sites that we have today. Oh, those are, those are combined cycle projects? Yeah. Thank you, thank yep. you. Okay, and then, um, then it sounds like we have more planned in the future, perhaps? Yes, we have a, a couple in our kind of 2030, 2028 to 2030 timeframe, which is sort of the next round of expected retirement. So we see um, new, the hydrogen capable new combined cycle technology could be a good replacement for coal in that timeframe. Is that coordinated with the Kansas Hydrogen Hub proposal or is that separate? It's separate. Um, we were involved in the development of the hydrogen hub proposal, and I think down the road we could be a potential customer, but it was so far down the road that we couldn't really know exactly how much that would be or, or how it would fit into the hub proposal yet. Okay, okay. The other question I have is um, the, the Lawrence power plant, mm -hmm. um, you know, is an asset for Evergy and has value even if it's shut down, you still have a switch yard, you have transmission lines running out yep. from the plant. Does the IRP uh, consider or plan for future activity there? I mean, could that be converted into transition from coal to gas or transition from coal to some other yeah. energy generator and still use the infrastructure that's available? Yeah, so our current plan actually assumes Lawrence 5 continues to operate on natural gas only when Lawrence 4 retires. So we do assume a conversion there to a much lower capacity factor, lower cost resource that's really just a capacity resource when it's running on gas for those peak times. But yes, we do also have the interconnection rights that we could use to replace that generation. That's not looked at specifically in the IRP because it's more of a general system-wide view. But when Jason's team looks at potential resources that we could use to execute on our plan, we're looking at where do we have interconnects that we could reuse, what's the, sometimes that can give you bonus tax credits as well if you're reusing uh, sites. So we're, we're looking at all of that more on a resource specific um, evaluation. Okay. All right. Um, we have 
Jason also to speak, and we have had one member from the public have their hand up the entire presentation here. So I'll call on, on William. I'll ask you to be brief so that we can move on to Jason, but go ahead, William Steele. You're on mute. All right, sorry about that. Can you hear me now? We can. Yes. Yes. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, adding, you know, additional renewables, you, they reached a certain saturation point after which you have diminishing gains. I'd like you to talk about that, but but I'd also like to ask you to talk a little bit more in details, uh, detail your assumptions behind uh, the pricing of, of the resources, particularly coal and gas, you know, just to pick up on what Nancy Muma said, were any of the negative externalities figured into your assumptions about pricing going forward? Okay. Um, so on the second question, I'll start with that one. We factor in pretty significant environmental retrofit costs as a factor into our cost assumptions. So that's how we're trying to factor in continuing changes in EPA regulations and which are in turn driven by some of those externalities. So that is a factor in our costs on top of normal maintenance of the plant, everything that will be required to keep it operating until it retires. Um, and then on the first one about the saturation point, so it, I would say on solar, we're nowhere near close, nowhere near that saturation point. So there is still quite a bit of potential for capacity from solar. SPP is seeing quite a bit more um, penetration of wind. So it doesn't really get reached a point and then fall off a cliff. It just sort of declines over time gradually as you add more and more the incremental value you get from each one is less than the one before, um, which impacts all of them, not just the, the late comers. So that's just driven by ultimately the potential for wind to meet your peak requirement is driven by the wind, not by how many wind turbines you have. So you can keep adding infinite wind turbines and if the wind's not blowing, it's not blowing. So it's overly simplified, but what it's trying to do is factor in that diminishing returns of adding more and more resources or more and more power plants when your resource itself is intermittent. So that sounds like it just applies only to wind. What about solar? Solar's the same. Solar's the same. The, sh the curve is shaped slightly differently, but because there's so little SPP solar in SPP today, you're starting much higher up on the curve when you start deploying solar now. If that makes sense. So you're at a high level where you get a lot of credit for the first several solar farms that you install and then it declines over time. Okay, all right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks, William. Um, Michael, please. Yep, we've got, we've got time. I'll need to speak into the mic. Do you wanna stand here? Hi, I'm Michael Allman. Um, there was a little bit of mention earlier about storage. And uh, I understand, I get it, that the reliability for Evergy Utility is base load primarily, but then also being able to meet the peak load. And typically, gas plants are peaker plants. I find, though, however, that Evergy seems to be underinvested in storage. Storage is an ideal thing for meeting peak load. 
and yet you say it's too exotic and too expensive and you're reserving it for the future. There's um, a number of pumped hydro facilities in the United States and Europe and around the world. The oldest one I know of is in St. Louis, Missouri. It's at least 75 years old. It's a simple technology. It's water pumped uphill, generates electricity coming back downhill. I'm sure you know about it. Um, but also batteries is not just lithium batteries. There's a plant a company called Forum Energy that is ramping up production right now in Pennsylvania of iron rust batteries. They're not matter of hours for storage, they're a matter of four days long duration storage. It's a simple technology, it's not exotic, exotic materials. Uh, I don't understand why Evergy isn't more creative in investigating in more storage. Um, it's something that you don't need lithium ion batteries and you don't need to spend a lot of money on that kind of technology. Um, something coming down the pike that probably isn't ramped up yet would be sulfide-based solid-state batteries. Um, no danger of fires. So there's any number of options for storage that can meet peak load, and I challenge Evergy to investigate more in that. I don't know if you want to respond, Kayla. Yeah, I, we continue to look at those. I've actually talked to Form Energy several times. They do have a really interesting technology. They're building their first demonstration, which I think is one megawatt, 100 hours, which is awesome. I, I really hope that it works, and I hope that it will be economic. Um, that's why we stay in touch with them, but we kind of have to wait to see how the first pilot with Great Rivers goes before we start planning around something at a larger scale. And pumped hydro is kind of topology dependent, so we are looking at if there's a place for that, but um, yeah, lots of interesting technologies on the storage side. Didn't mean to make it sound like we're not looking at them, um, if that was what was heard. All right, thank you. We need to move along, so uh, I would thank you, Kayla, and I would ask Jason if you wanted to come up and talk about some solar-specific. Yeah, I'll be... Uh very brief. My name is Jason Humphrey. Um, thanks to the board for having me. Uh, I run new generation development for Evergy. Um, so kind of a pitcher catcher model with Kayla's team. Uh, Kayla's team helps set the plan for where we're heading over the next um, 20 years and then I help kind of implement and build those resources. I'll, I'll respond quickly to the storage as I jump in here. Um, for the Southwest Power Pool, uh, Evergy actually had the second grid-connected battery um, at all in, in the Southwest Power Pool. There's just not a lot of storage penetration in the central United States. The supply and demand side economics are challenged right now, which is what the IRP is producing. Um, but Evergy has an active and ongoing pilot at the Wichita Zoo where we can actually island the zoo and supported by a battery um, and really learning a lot about the technology and how it'll help us in the future here. Um, I want to 
preface what I'm about to say about Kansas Sky uh, with this is a, a joint project um, between Savion Energy and Evergy. Uh, it's Savion's project today, but there is an agreement in place um, where Evergy would be the ultimate owner and operator uh, of the project uh, subject to regulatory approval um, at the KCC. Is this sharing? Not anymore. Uh, go back to Zoom. Apologies. There we go. All right. So this briefly is the site plan or site overview for the Kansas Sky uh, project. It is just north of the Lawrence Energy Center, uh, as you guys know today. Uh, so this is on the north side of the Kansas River. Um, and the proposed point of interconnection to the high voltage grid uh, is at the Midland substation uh, for those who are aware uh, where that is uh, on the north side of town. So the project's subject to local and state regulatory approval, uh, including approval from, from Douglas County and ultimately from the Kansas Corporation Commission uh, for Evergy's ownership. But at a high level, um, this is a solar project that would generate about 160 megawatts AC uh, onto the grid. The earliest, depending on the local siting permit and the KCC process, uh, that we could potentially start construction uh, would be 2024, uh, with the earliest possible commercial operation date for that site uh, of 2025, um, planning about a 16-month construction schedule uh, likely for, the, for that site. Operating life for solar resources, uh, 35 to 40 years today. Uh, Douglas County's CUP standard has 25 years, uh, but you would be able to, to potentially reapply for that uh, within that 25-year period. Um, for the site, there's 1,100 uh, acres that we have secured to site it. Uh, the design includes about 830 acres within the fence um, at the site, and then the solar equipment will cover about 734 uh, acres. Um, Tax revenue for the townships and districts is still estimated, uh, could be as much as 110 million, uh, currently estimating about 75 uh, million. Big questions we've got is why was this area selected for the solar project? Um, there's a few features that this site has um, that really make it attractive uh, for solar. Uh, first and foremost, it's proximate to the transmission grid. There's a good point of interconnect at Midland Substation uh, there at the north uh, side of the river. Um, there's large contiguous land parcels um, that we had, flat topography uh, with minimal grading required. Uh, so it won't have to disturb much soil, limited impact to environment, environmentally sensitive land, willing landowners, and low residential den density, uh, which is a key component of the Douglas County siting uh, requirements um, for solar. I'm happy to answer questions about the project. I just wanted to be brief, particularly with the amount of time that we had for uh, Kayla's section, but happy to answer any questions um, that anyone might have. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. I wonder if there's any uh, board members that have questions. Um, Kay, did you have one or? Amanda's got Amanda. 
Um, hang on. Amanda, I see your hand raised. Sorry, I, I can't see everybody at once. I got to change. No, it's quite all right. <laughs> um, I was just curious if we've looked into how this is going to affect. You said it's close to the transmission grid here, so the location is great for this project. We have had solar customers who um, have been denied. I mean, not necessarily here in Lawrence, but in other parts of Kansas, been denied uh, interconnection, stating that that part of the grid was already overloaded. And those are some of the areas that we have seen utility scale megawatts go in. And I was just curious as to how that might potentially affect Lawrence residents and surrounding areas um, ability to interconnect as far as this, from a safety standpoint, which is what we've heard come back from the utility companies that have denied these applications. Sorry about them. Yeah, so I, I think the question was um, safety related uh, overall. Um, I will say that there's actually a pretty detailed process for getting an interconnection um, for a site, uh, which is one of the reasons it takes so long to develop uh, new resources. Um, the SPP has a three-phase study process uh, that each resource interconnection request goes through um, that is looking at different scenarios on, on the grid, kind of a base load scenario, a high harmonics or high load scenario, uh, and then finally, you know, what is the equipment cost that you need to put in place to allow this thing to, to plug into the grid? Um, so the Kansas Sky process project in particular is still being studied at SPP. We have our phase one uh, results for that um, process. And what the SPP is designing is a total grid across the SPP footprint that works with the generator interconnections uh, that are there. So I think largely for projects to, um, to move forward in the internet connection process. They're looking at overall economics. The grid can be built out to be safe, um, but sometimes those project economics can be marginal, uh, and potentially those projects don't move forward uh, because the cost of the interconnection at the end of the day is too large for that particular project to support. Okay, I, I guess, um, so my question is, is have we looked at how this is gonna affect the local residents' ability to interconnect after this has been installed. I mean, this sounds like it'd be a great thing for Evergy, and I understand that as a whole, then great for you know all of us because you're using more solar energy. But for those that are seeking a little bit more energy independence and wanting to go solar themselves, we're seeing applications denied in other areas, stating that there's already too much solar on that part of the grid, and they're not being able to interconnect and not even just in net metering, but with parallel generation, which they have that federal right to, unless there is a safety issue, which is what then has been regurgitated to us. So I was just curious as to if you had any idea about how it will affect small commercial and residential customers' ability to interconnect after it's been installed. Yeah, I, I appreciate your uh, clarification there. That, that helps me answer quite a bit. So where Kansas Sky will interconnect is on the high voltage transmission system. Um, for those seeking to pursue parallel generation or net metering at their house, they're connecting at a much, much lower voltage um, and kind of at that distribution voltage level. And for the distribution network, it's very, very circuit dependent. Um, so what's happening in your kind of hyper local region, maybe the five house 
houses that you're closest to on the street or the three businesses down the road. That distribution system um, is planned at that hyper-local level, whereas the transmission system um, at the end of the day is kind of Evergy footprint or SPP footprint wide. Um, so I don't think Kansas Sky is going to, to impact that one way or another. It's connecting to a different part of the electric grid entirely. Thanks, Amanda. Any other questions from board members for Jason? Jason, I have one. So, um, I've been. I'm also the Sustainability Advisory Board's rep for the county's Food Policy Council. Okay. And as always, you know, there's these tensions that are going on, particularly in rural communities that are thinking about uh, alternative energy like wind and solar. So. Um, uh, you know, a key component, it seems like, of solar development is often topography, which also overlaps a lot often with class one and class two soils. So um, can you speak a little bit to maybe the commitment or the ideas that you guys have or the investment you're willing to do in terms of agrivoltaics or in terms of trying to retain what a lot of people see as the character of the county in this area um, to kind of mitigate that us versus them kind of mentality that happens. And you know, I think they see that also, if I put on my city hat for a minute, as like the city needing lots of energy and the county being overwhelmed with solar. Do uh, you see what I'm saying? Like, so it, it can exacerbate that urban rural kind of problem that we have. Yeah, the, the urban rural dynamics, I won't pretend to, <laughs> to answer that's with that's the agrivoltaics question. I will say the future of agrivoltaics is pretty exciting, um, but it's pretty nascent. Um, there's been a lot of uh, pilot plots or experiments that have been performed that uh, show promise with crops that tend to be diurnal, working really, really well under solar. Like growing lettuce in this part of the country that wouldn't be possible uh, without that. Um, sheep grazing, goats are not good, cows are too big, sheep seem to be kind of the sweet spot, but most of the places that that's been tried, it's on solar farms that are a megawatt or less. Um, what has been really promising and has been used in the Midwest quite a bit is agrivoltaics plans targeted to pollinator-friendly species, um, which we've seen bee populations continue to decline, not a lot of areas for native grasslands to flourish, uh, and they tend to like um, the areas under solar that have a little bit of shade, uh, and they also work at a height that works for the solar panels. They're not 15 foot tall uh, kind of things. You're not gonna shade with those. Um, so we've got a, a project that Evergy built in Baldwin, Kansas, um, that's about a megawatt and a half, uh, has pollinator friendly seed mix, and it looks like a community garden uh, when you go out there. Been really, really well received by the, the local community there. Uh, so we would intend to do that probably with Kansas Sky, if we can. Um, and a real focus on native grasses. I think you said you're in uh, soil science. And so one of the things that these croplands that have been used for generations have not experienced is, is soil rest. Uh, and so getting native grasses that are, you know, designed in some ways uh, for this area back onto those soils and allowing that soil to rest 
while it has solar on it, uh, and then maybe moving back to, to agriculture in the future is a really, really big advantage. It's kind of like, if you're familiar with the CRP program or the crop restoration program, it's like CRP on steroids. The native grass mixes that we would plan to use here um, would mirror things that have been specifically identified as uh, native and happy on the riverbed where Kansas sky uh, would be. The last thing we've talked about, um, and I think we have now uh, submitted as part of the CUP application, is we would like to have pilots here too. Uh, Kayla talked about the lack of solar penetration in the SPP. Some of these first newer larger projects give us the opportunity to experiment. We happen to have uh, a number of really good research universities uh, in Kansas and one right in the backyard of, of the site. And so getting you know 10 acre test plots where we can experiment with lettuces or have sheep um, do those kind of things and learn lessons that we can apply going forward is a real hope uh, coming out of this as well. And that's all intended for Sky. Yeah. Thanks. I don't see any other board members with their hands raised at this point. Michael, if you can be brief, we still have more meeting to go, but please. Thank you, Michael Allman. Um, and thank you, Mr. Sykes, for bringing up the question of agrovoltaics. Um, my question is, first of all, Evergy is not in the business of grazing or growing prairie or anything of that sort. Um, neither is Savion. Um, it's not, I mean, for, for pollinator plants, which is what you mentioned, Mr. Humphreys, it's not a matter of just spreading a bunch of seed and walking away just like you do for turf grass. Um, Prairie needs, if you're trying to reestablish prairie somewhere, it's going to take years to reestablish it. So my question is, who is going to do that? Do you have clauses in your contracts with the landowners to have a maintenance plan to make sure that it doesn't end up in being, for instance, Johnson grass everywhere, that you then need herbicide? Who is going to maintain that? Who is going to establish this New pollinator prairie plants. How is that going to practically, functionally, and legally happen? Don't think I'll get into lease contract uh, specifics here. Um, we've worked with folks who manage soils at our other um, sites. We have a number of engineering firms that are quite local. Um, we have grassroots organizations throughout Kansas um, that we've worked with on other sites and we would plan to, to do the same thing uh, with Kansas Sky that's been submitted as part of our um, agrivoltaics plan uh, as part of the the application for the conditional use permit uh, with Douglas County and then as the owner and operator of the site ultimately Evergy would be responsible for for working with the landowners to maintain that site both as a used and useful resource on the electric grid um, but also as good stewards of that um, lease agreement that we have with the owner. Thank you. Yeah, I don't see any other hands raised or board members with questions. So I want to thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And we need to move on in our agenda. Uh, 
Next item on the agenda is to receive updates from our subcommittees. And uh, the first one is the Climate Action Plan subcommittee, Nancy. Oh no, wait, well, I'm jumping the gun. First thing is our staff report, Kathy. Yes, and I uh, promise to be brief uh, tonight. So um, Kathy Richardson, Director of Sustainability. So uh, I wrote down a few things so I wouldn't forget, but just really briefly, a couple weeks ago I did attend uh, the Greenbelt Conference in DC, which is awesome, lots of great information. And it was great to have a friendly face there because Kay Johnson was there with her company. So um, that was awesome. Last week I was at a conference in Mulvane, Kansas. It's the, the Kansas Salt waste management conference and just um, a, a quick share um, I did have a presentation in the sustainability track and I had mentioned um, Lawrence's uh, move to adopting the ordinance of for the single-use plastic bags and one of the things I just was not aware is how many communities in Kansas are talking about this so we kind of already know a few uh, but I was uh, surprised there was even one percenter right after me um, who was talking about the zero waste initiative in Salina and they were you know within the presentation said that they were so bummed to hear just earlier that Lawrence has already moved forward with an ordinance because they wanted to be the first in the state but they said they'll be okay being the second city that passes something like this um, the uh, Topeka sustainability advisory board has already been in contact with me and has asked for some information and documents that you all um, created over the years um, so again kudos to you all because there's a lot of interest and conversations going on in the state of Kansas of how other uh, cities can adopt a similar ordinance um, I do also want to say kudos to Michael Allman and Nancy and others from the Sustainability Action Network for putting on such an awesome event in South Park. Uh, that was the Lawrence EV Showcase. Uh, so thank you so much. That that was a, a great show. Um, and then just this earlier this week, I know uh, most of you attended the tour of the city's water treatment and wastewater treatment plants. Um, hopefully that information was useful and I am working to coordinate the next tour which will be of our household hazardous waste facility and our compost facility so stay tuned on some date options there um, I'll, I'll let you all know what what could could come about here soon and then the final quick item I wanted to mention last meeting, I went over a timeline of a lot of plans that are coming out and discussions that are happening this fall. Uh, but one in particular to highlight is the Douglas County uh, Climate Action and Adaptation Plan is scheduled to be released to the public the first week in November. So that will be right before this your next meeting. And um, Douglas County staff did ask uh, if there could be a presentation on the Douglas County Climate Action and Adaptation Plan. And I, I think we've got that on schedule now for your November meeting. So just kind of um, be aware that that's coming up and that the plan is going to be released to the public for some community engagement, feedback, and so forth. Um, so we can continue to work on that plan and refine it until its final state. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy. And, and thank you for organizing the tour of the wastewater treatment plant and the water treatment plant. 
was very information, uh, very informative. Mm -hmm. And um, fortunately for me, I've <laughs> lost my sense of smell <laughs> and taste uh, before I went there. So I had no idea how <laughs> wastewater treatment plant smelled. I've been to many before. I know what it should smell like. I didn't smell a thing. So it was very, very good for me uh, personally. So, but thank you for organizing that. And I look forward to the household hazardous waste and the um, composting facility. I would say yard waste, the composting facility. All right, with that, we can uh, move into the subcommittees. And the first one on our agenda is the Climate Action Plan subcommittee. Nancy? So the Climate Action Subcommittee has been um, working with Janie Hoffman and looking at the plans for the, or the drafts. And we'll be meeting right after this to, to give input on the most latest draft. The other thing that we we're working on is looking at uh, asking the city to be an intervener in the IRP uh, for Evergies that's coming up in April um, so that we could uh, push for an earlier closure of the coal-fired power plant here in the Lawrence Energy Center. All right, thanks, Nancy. Any questions for Nancy? Um, and Nancy, next is the steering committee. Is seems kind of duplicative. You want to talk about that? Same thing. Okay. Next is uh, the weed ordinance subcommittee. Ben, do you have any update for us there on anything? Uh, yeah, after hearing from Kathy last time about the conversations with staff, I think uh, I went ahead and, and put some work into trying to revise the ordinance, stripping out the land development code pieces, and we're circulating that now through the subcommittee and trying to schedule a meeting. We'll probably bring that back to SAB to try and move that again towards city commission. Okay, great. We look forward to seeing that. And uh, you get to go next with the Douglas County Food Policy Council as well. Oh, yep. Uh, we have a meeting on Monday, and the last one was great. And in fact, many of us went out for the f uh, farm tour. If anybody was able to go to the farm tour, uh, I was at um, uh, the one that's just right by the airport, the Thelmans. Sorry, I'm blanking on it. Anyways. Nancy, Nancy Thelmans? Yeah, uh, Scotty and Nancy. Anyways, um, it was a great time, and a lot of. Yeah, thank you. Juniper Hill. Appreciate her. Uh, Juniper Hill Farms, and that was great. And a lot of us went out to different places, and so that was a uh, highlight of the Food Policy Council last uh, this last month. Excellent. Excellent. Kay, do you have any updates for us on the Land Development Code? Yes, I do. Um, thank you, Kathy, for distributing the um, second module for the Land Development Code. I'm the... Um, representative for sustainability advisory board on this particular um, committee. And this is a two-year effort to totally revamp the um, land development code, which includes, and in particular, this second module, which is now what we're talking about, includes a lot of the things that we are all very concerned about, lighting, um, landscaping, um, flood plains, flooding, uh, buffer zones. If if you all are interested in this, look at this area. Um, they go by, it is kind of a strange way that they look at it, but they are looking at each individual zone area. So what, what we need are, are you people that are interested in this to provide comments? You can provide them to me as well as to the 
um, land development code um, public comment period, which uh, October the 19th, there'll be a meeting from four to six for my task force, my committee, but also that there is, there's an opportunity to provide public comment at that time. Michael Allman usually attends. Many of the people on the Sustainability Advisory Board have attended these update committees. I know Ben has, Kathy has, uh, Nancy has, quite a few people have. This is the time um, for those sorts of things. There's lots of different uh, areas that are included, mobility, walkability, um, you know, these things that we've talked about, the things regarding, um, you know, dealing with the climate change and um, particularly like extra flooding and those sorts of things. So now is this is the time. So um, please look at the documents that were provided to you by Kathy and feel free to also provide me whatever comments that you provide because um, my comments can also be, uh, can mirror some of yours. And uh, so I'm interested in getting anybody from the Sustainability Advisory Board as well as the public to send me uh, their comments that are also um, made to the public. We know for a fact that there are developments that are being proposed on the floodplain that are probably gonna flood and that is gonna end up having <laughs> insurance issues when these are flooding. So as we move into new development areas, which we're going to um, west and south and north, we need to be sure that we have the codes in place to deal with these issues so that whatever developments, residential, mixed use or whatever, uh, we're not constantly dealing with flooding properties. So that, that, I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in a lot of the walkability issues too. But anyway, that's, uh, you got all of that information. If you have any questions, please feel free to send me an email. Thank you, Kay. Mm -hmm. um, the next update is from me on uh, the Boards and Commission Structure Committee. Uh, for those of you following that, the next meeting is tomorrow night here uh, and if you look at the agenda there are three items on the agenda uh, course of action one two and three course of action one is basically the is the letter that was proposed back in August I don't think that's going to go anywhere personally course of action two is has taken that letter and modified it substantially it's making the same recommendations. Uh, the one that you're probably most interested in concerns the SAB. It still recommends that the SAB d be dissolved. But it did recommend to the city commission, it says, because environmental sustainability is an essential commitment of the city's strategic plan that is incorporated into all the strategic plan outcomes, the Board and Commission Structure Committee uh, recommends that the City Commission consider how to better align environmental sustainability with the strategic plan. That's what that says. Then there's a Course of Action 3 letter uh, that will be considered, and that uh, uh, is essentially the same as Course of Action 2, except it says that the Air Aviation Advisory Board and the SAB should remain as separate 
individual advisory boards and not be eliminated or consolidated. The Aviation Advisory Board is proposed to be kind of consolidated into a transportation committee. So those are the three items for consideration tomorrow night. Um, I know that it's the desire of many on that board to try to wrap things up tomorrow night and get to a final decision. So I think that'll be the, the push from the chair is to something's gonna be voted out tomorrow, is my guess. And just point of clarification, they will have public comment during that meeting. My understanding is they will, yes. So uh, yes. this is the opportunity to, for the uh, last opportunity for the public to comment at this stage on this board's, uh, the structure committee's recommendations. Correct. Thank you. Correct. Yep. So we can all show up online or in person, right? Correct. Correct. It will be a Zoom available meeting as well. Thanks. And and the chair has told me that they will be taking public comment. That's my understanding. Last meeting that was in question and it required yep. some Clever. arm twisting, I think, to to get to it. But we did have public comment, so. Which we all appreciate, Stan. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Stan. Yeah, thanks. Can, um, can you share the information on the? details of the meeting the zoom link and that sort of thing it yes it, it's on the city's website on the agenda for to if you just go to the calendar for tomorrow it'll link you right to the agenda for the the committee i see a, a hand raised jt yes i want to thank stan for his uh, um, strong and uh strong leadership in this and it's going to be uh, really interesting to see what happens tomorrow, tomorrow night. Um, regardless of what happens, the city proposes to do its own um, implementation and, uh, and then dissolve the committee, apparently. And that's going to require vigilance. Uh, and I suggest Saab plan on um, following up on that. Thank you. Thank you for those comments. All right, next item on the agenda is uh, kind of a solar readiness update. Uh, Amanda, can you just kind of let everybody know generally what you're working on and what what we're kind of working towards? Yeah, so <clears throat> this last month did not afford me a whole lot of time as much as I would have liked to have been able to spend on this to give you more this month. Um, but in kind of reviewing what we had and what we are seeing from a lot of the other states that have adopted a solar readiness. Um, my thoughts on it kind of, I think, shifted in light of some recent experiences that we've had with some of our permitting here in Lawrence too. And when I think about solar readiness, I think about what, um, what codes or what building codes we're gonna require of new construction of new builds uh, to make those buildings ready for solar. And a lot of times what we see is that there's a conduit ran that is empty and ready to support solar. Um, that's, that's fine and all, but I've, in some cases, I feel like this does add unnecessary cost and it might not actually meet the sizing because conduit is sized based on on your, on your project size 
um, it's just, it's kind of like painting lipstick on something, but it isn't actually getting the job done. And so I thought, like, what could, what could we really do to improve the solar readiness of Lawrence and not necessarily in that code? And that's where I talked to the other members about making solar more, so, or Lawrence more solar friendly. Um, like we have one of the most restrictive HRCs as far, the Historic Review Council, sorry uh, for those that don't know that, um, as far as what's allowed, I mean, all, all your house has to be is within a visual distance of another historical house and they don't want to see solar on it. Um, to potentially, you know, going as far as saying that HOAs can't say no to solar. Not saying that we can just do whatever we want, that perhaps we have kind of um, a hard line of what, you know, would be required, all black modules, all black, you know, racking and frames to keep a nice aesthetic appearance so it's not a distraction and it doesn't take away from the environs of the historic areas or the HOAs. Um, but that's kind of where I took it. And then, you know, Kay mentioned that perhaps this be something that we reevaluated our goal settings to see if we even want to recommend. Um, solar readiness, again, um, I think, uh, so, in, in line of what's coming up with the land development code, I think maybe some of my ideas also go hand in hand with that, and I will try to make some perhaps recommendations that could be brought to their attention as well and for considerations. Um, that's really kind of where our conversation led, is not necessarily what can we require of new development so that way it can be ready for solar to be put on it, but what can Lawrence do to make solar easier and more affordable for our businesses and our residents. I think if we could make some recommendations out of the SAB for the the work that the Land Development Code and the, the, the Development Code uh, committees are working on, it would provide real value to the city. So I, I, I appreciate you taking the lead on, on getting us started on that. And I hope that we can work towards making a formal proposal for consideration on some of these solar ready uh, considerations. Whether they end up being requirements or just considerations, however that is done, I still think it can be of value uh, to our community. So I appreciate your efforts there. Yeah, I think if we're gonna meet our goals, the you know city of Lawrence's goals, then we're gonna have to do what we can to help not only educate the community, but the people that are overseeing like the permitting um, aspect of that, so. Agreed, agreed. Kay? I'd love to, I don't know if that means that we have to do it by October or when it, when your meeting is uh, on the 19th, Kay? No, and I don't, I don't know okay. exactly what the timeline is, Amanda, and I would be glad to let everyone know what the timeline is because generally it's usually a month after we have a meeting, so it's not usually fast, um, but it, it is helpful for us to be able to speak to some of those concerns at our meeting, which will be next week, and I haven't even reviewed the stuff myself because I just got it. Um, but if 
you know, I, but I will be sure and get Kathy the timeline so that she can send it out to everyone. So everyone that wishes to comment, because there are multiple opportunities usually to provide comment, um, public comment at our meeting on October 19th, but also public comment uh, for several other days later. And I, I don't have those dates yet, and maybe they don't even have those dates yet. But, but with module one, we saw several opportunities for public comment, so uh, written as well as, uh, you know, providing in person. All right, thank you, Kay. Well, we have two more agenda items, a weatherization update and an ordinance 9744 update, but we're bucking up against our, our time for finishing, and I'd like to give um, Michael Allman the, the last opportunity so we can at least say we, we had public comments. <laughs> Thanks for taking Thank you, Stanley. Thank you, Michael. Very quickly, on the land development code, uh, Brad Finkeldye told me that all the modules will remain open for public comment. So there's no particular time frame for that. Um, at the meetings, the, the two-hour meetings of the steering committee, they actually rarely do allow public comment except at the end, sometimes there may be a little bit of time, but it's unpredictable. Yeah. Um, secondly, I want to thank Kathy and Parks and Recreation and Lawrence Transit for co-sponsoring the Lawrence Electric Vehicle Show. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate that information about the Development Code Board. Thank you. Yeah. All right, with that, I'm sorry. We're, uh, I would like to say real quickly that ahead, if you Kay. get me your comments, I can submit those during the steering committee. Okay. Excellent, thank you. With that, I'm sorry we're going to have to move our other agenda items to next month and um, look forward to seeing everybody in November. Uh, thank you for being here. And uh, with that, we're going to close the meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy. Somebody was waving, but I just went ahead and... That was me. Sure. Okay. <laughs>